of the word of the Lord. The reading comes from Psalm 16. It says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You, may no, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you again for a Sunday, Lord, the Lord's day, to come and to rest and to hear your word. Lord, we ask that you, by your spirit, would write these words upon our hearts. Help us, Lord, to worship you and to love you and to know you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Nate Waddell, and I'm the REF campus minister at UTA, but I also go here, and I'm one of the pastors here. And so it is good and an honor to, um, to be able to preach and to be here this morning. Um, it's good to see Ryan back in the Arkham family. We missed you very much, and we love you very much. Um, but let us go into the word of the Lord. So Peter at Pentecost preaches the first Christian sermon ever in Acts chapter 2. And he first talks about how Jesus and the crucifixion was part of God's eternal, definite plan. But then in verse 24, he gives his main point of the entire sermon, and that is though Jesus died, God raised him from the dead. And so Peter, for his first resurrection sermon, had a text that he preached from, and the main text that he quotes is Psalm 16. So in other words, you know, if, if, the first, if the first Easter sermon was preached from Psalm 16 and that was sort of good enough for Peter, my hope is that will be good enough for us this morning as well. And so this psalm, Psalm 16, it's a psalm of David, and David is desperately crying out to God for something. He's desperately crying out to God. And in Psalm 16, what he's crying out for is a refuge. He's crying out for a refuge, a house, a place of protection that ultimately cannot be shaken. And so from this text, we're going to see that we, like David, need a refuge that cannot be shaken. And so we're going to be looking at two things from our text this morning. The first we're going to see is why do we need this? And the second we're going to ask is how do we get it? So why do we need a refuge that cannot be shaken? If you look at verse 1, you will see that David is crying out and he's crying out to God. He's saying, listen, and you is where I find safety, that you are my refuge. And then in the rest of the psalm, he declares his confidence in God that he can actually do this, that he can actually be this. In verse 1, he says, you are my refuge. In verse 5, he says, you, Lord, make my lot secure. And in verse 8, he says, with you at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
And what David is pointing out here is actually something that is seen throughout the entire Bible. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, all the way in the beginning, was looking forward to a city with foundations, meaning strong and lasting, that can't be toppled, but whose architect and builder was God. Later on in Hebrews chapter 12, we learn that we, the church, are ultimately going to be receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so the teaching of Scripture and of Hebrews 12 is this. It's that um, it points out that nothing human-made, that nothing in this world will ultimately last. That there is nothing in this world that we cannot, that we can build our lives upon that will ultimately be shaken. There is nothing and no one who will see decay, that will not see decay. As I was driving here and I was looking at the buildings, um, I was noticing how broken some of them are. Many of them are physically decaying. They are rotting away. They were well built with stone and rock and concrete, uh, but now they are, uh, they are a reminder that everything physical will ultimately pass away. UTA's beautiful new buildings, uh, they look great. They look like they're never going to come down. But the old ones remind us that they will, that they too will see decay because there are no physical foundations in life. There's no physical foundations. I remember in the, when I was in grad school, I, was, I took a class on developmental psychology and I was reminded that from basically about the, you know, by the time you're born to really around age 20, your body is slowly traveling towards its like peak physical state. And from about 20 to 30, your, your, your metabolism is at its best, your vision and hearing is at its best, but around 30, plus or minus a few years, our bodies start to begin the process of decay, so that by the age of 40, your hearing and vision for everyone will be worse than it was when it was 30. But even not just our physical bodies are decaying, science tells us that this universe and all the energy of all the suns will eventually run out. That matter itself will begin to pass away, meaning that even if we could live for a billion years, that eventually everything we ever did, every memory of us, will ultimately pass away and be forgotten forever. Why? Because there are no physical foundations. But there aren't just no physical foundations, there are also no intellectual foundations. Have you ever realized that the truths uh, from the best and most enlightened and smartest people from a hundred years ago are essentially obsolete now? Have you realized that the best moral and ethical teachings from even 20 years ago are considered offensive, old, and degrading? I mean, I, I even remember conversations with my own grandfather where he said things that, you know, everybody sort of believed from his day that I was just shocked that he was saying those out loud. <laughs> And at the same time, right, there are things that I have said to my own RUF students, and they look at me like I'm insane, and I'm only eight years older than them. But they look at me, and they're like, you are so old. And I'm like, all right, whatever. But the reality is, right, that in a hundred years from now, what we believe, what we think, what we think is important, our opinions will be old, they will be offensive, and they will be outdated. And that is how it's always been, and that is how it always will be. Why? Because there are no intellectual foundations. But there's not just no intellectual or physical foundations. There aren't any emotional foundations either. And what I mean by this is that life will surely take away everything you love and care for. Many of us have already had friendships that have imploded. People that we've lived with our, our whole lives that we thought we could, never, we, we could never not be friends with those people. 
and we don't speak to them. We've had family members and loved ones who have fallen away. Many of us here have lost people simply because we've moved to different cities, and those relationships are no more. Not to mention, of course, the thing we all don't want to ever think about, the fact that not only we, but everyone we ever love will one day die. And the Bible says, don't look away from this. Don't lie to yourself. Don't numb yourself from this, which is what we do. Instead, it says, look at the flowers of the field. See how beautiful they are. See how wonderful those flowers are. Look at their beauty. But also, in a few weeks, remember that they will begin to, de- they will begin to decay. They will begin to fall apart. Why does it tell us to look at this? Because you and that flower are ultimately on the same journey. But now you see it, don't you? Why is David crying out? He's crying out because he's honest about life in this world and what it means to actually be a human. He's crying out because we're all crying out that this should not be. We don't want to be a vapor that we breathe out in a cold day and you see for an instant and then it's forever gone. We want something that will last. We want something that, will, that, that cannot be shaken. We want a refuge that we can go to that will protect us from these things, like children afraid who run to their parents. We want a refuge. We're crying out, and creation is groaning. We need a physical reality that won't die. We need beliefs and truths and purposes that will last. And we need a love that we cannot lose. We all need a refuge that cannot be shaken. In fact, we were made for it. We were made for it. And David cries out on our behalf, like we all are. So the question becomes, well, how do we get what David is talking about here? How do we get a foundation that cannot be shaken? Well, if you look at verse 4, you will see that David says that human beings, that we run after other gods. But ultimately, these other gods lead us to ruin. And we have to see this. We have to see the things that we worship and that we're running to now. What's interesting about the past uh, is if you, you know, if you look at these most other religions and cultures, they had a ton of gods, right? They had gods for wealth and gods for fertility and war, and they had gods for power and, and wisdom and love. They even had gods for debauchery and wine, right, which is just crazy parties. Uh, they had gods of sex and gods of family. And of course, us modern people, we are, you know, we're, we're, we're way too smart to believe that there were actually gods over those things. But what is interesting about us is just like them, we worship these things. We're controlled by these things. We give our lives to the exact same things. We modern people are too smart to believe that there were gods over those things, but we're also too naive to realize that we worship them the same, they control us the same, and we are enslaved to them. If I get into that school, I'll finally be happy. If I can get into that program, my life will finally be complete. If I marry the right person, you know, the person that always loves me perfectly and uh, is always there, then I'll finally be happy. If I make this much money and I can get everything I ever wanted, if my house looks a certain way, if my kids turn out a certain way, if they play the same sports that I did or whatever else we do to our kids, if I get this group of people to honor me and respect me, if I can get them to accept me, the rich or the attractive or whatever it is, the smart people, if I know all the right Bible verses, if I pray enough, if I have, then I'll have everything. We are all worshipers, giving our hearts to false gods to ultimately save and give our lives meaning. But in the end, they lead to ruin, which is what David says. Because humans run after gods. That's who we are. 
And David says in verse 4 that those who run after false gods will suffer more and more, and you know this to be true. The rare person who actually does get everything they want in this life suffers most as old age comes and everything begins to slip away. And it will slip away. Why? Because nothing has lasting foundations. Because nothing has lasting foundations. They will be shaken. So stop running after false gods. (laughs) Recognize them in your life. Look at what you worship. Or better yet, as Tim Keller says, you want to know your idols, look at your nightmares. What are the things you're most afraid of? So the first thing is we have to stop running after false gods. But second, we must, like David, be able to say in verse 2, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. Literally, the verse says, beyond you, no good. And the point is, is that if you want a refuge that will not ultimately be shaken, you must make and pursue and have the true God of the Bible be your everything. You must worship the everlasting Lord. What David is not saying here is, hey, if you want God, here's who's good enough, and do these things, and obey these laws, be good enough, and maybe he'll accept you. He's not saying do a lot of really good religious things, and then when you're good enough, you'll get all of God's stuff. No, that's the way of the false gods in verse 4. Instead, David cries out, and he becomes our representative, our, our example. He cries out in desperation to God himself, and God meets him. We love knowing that God first loved us. We make God our first priority. We pursue him. We make him our meaning, our life, our joy, our cup, our portion. We, we pursue him with our entire being. And God in that pursuit promises to always meet us there. So truly our life is about knowing and having God. Or better yet, life is about being known and being received by the God of the universe. And when we have him, we will be unshakable. Why? (laughs) Because in God only do we get a love we cannot lose. In the Lord only do we get a friend who doesn't leave. In God only do we get a purpose which lasts, that even death, when it strikes, cannot take away. So we turn from false gods, but we also must turn to the true and everlasting Lord. But you must also have what David points to in verses 9 through 11. This is what he says, In verse 9, he says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now what's David saying here? It seems to me that what David is saying You know, David, who's been saying in you and through you, this loving relationship that we have, that that death, even death won't be able to take this away from us. That even death can't take this relationship that I have with God away from me. Think about how much you love your, your spouse or your children or whatever it is that you love most. What would you do if something came into your life that threatened that? To threaten to take away that thing that you love the most? You would get rid of it. You'd cast it away. You would fight. You would do whatever you could to cast that thing away. How much more will an an all-powerful, omnipotent God drive away those things that push us away from him? And what David is saying here is, I have a covenant relationship with an infinite, eternal God and death. Not even death, I think, can ruin it. 
And what's fascinating about this passage is that David seems to have two convictions about what it is to be in a relationship with the Lord. In, in verse 11, David says, In your presence I will be filled with joy upon joy. And what's wonderful about this word, a presence, is it's actually the word face. It's actually the word face. And of course, David knows the story in Exodus 33 and 34 where uh, you know, Moses goes to God and, and he says, Let me see your face. And God says, if you look upon my face, you will die. But here, David says, I will see and be able to look upon your face, and I won't die, but I'll actually be in the place of joy. Endless and eternal pleasures are at your right hand. C.S. Lewis tried to talk about this in a sermon, and he says that God, when he creates, he cannot do so apart from his character and his person. Just like an artist who paints a picture, their personality will always come out, right? Same when a person, you know, writes a song. Their personality and their story and, and, and the, even the, the style of music that they like all become a part of creating a song. And Lewis said that when God created the universe, the reason that pleasure and goodness exist in creation is because it is God who created it. He asks, why is it that when beautiful music is played, which we just played, why is it, which is really just noise, do we weep? Why is it that we get such pleasure from sounds? Why, when we see a perfect cherry blossom in bloom on the road, do you have to pull over and marvel at its beauty? Why is it that when you eat your favorite foods, do you close your eyes? C.S. Lewis says it's because God has made these things. And when we enjoy all of life's earthly pleasures that come from God's very hand in creation, we are getting a tiny glimmer, a shadow, a tiny taste of what it's going to ultimately be like to see God face to face. In other words, if the world's best pleasures are from the small streams of God's hands, imagine what it will be like to see him face to face. Imagine what it will be like to go to the source of all pleasure and joy and drink of God's pleasure and goodness. And then imagine that it will never, ever cease. What if you believe that after this life, you got to see God face to face, and not even just, not just see Him, not even just know Him, but to see Him delighting in you, and got to stand and be in His presence forever? Wouldn't that change you completely? Maybe you're thinking, wow, that's great, David. I'm glad David has this. Uh, David has that, but I've never had this before. How can I know? How can I get a hope like this? How can I get a hope like this? And the truth is that we, the church, believe that we have the ultimate proof that this is true. Because we have and know the one who is put into the grave, but death could not hold on to him. We have the one who became our refuge and took our blows for our sins and the death that we deserved and the wrath that was coming to us. And as we come to him, we know we are protected because he was struck down. We know the one who tasted death but rose again and was not corrupted and is now in God's presence. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says this about David. He says, this is 2.29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, and of that we are all eyewitnesses. Jesus went to the grave, but it could not hold him. He died and did not see corruption. And now he's at the right hand of God with all power and authority, guaranteeing that his resurrection will be ours. And do you see how different that is from wishful thinking or a little inspiration to get on through the day? Do you see what Peter's doing here? He's not trying to motivate them. He's not trying to to, to comfort their hearts. He's not even trying to start a new religion. He's trying to invite them into a brand new reality where death is not the end of a people's story. He's saying Jesus is raised from the dead as a fact, something that they've seen and touched with their own eyes. And your resurrection by faith in Jesus Christ, it's also a fact. It's a done deal. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. And Jesus is the pledge and the seal. Now let me ask you this. What would change about your life if the resurrection of Jesus, as well as your resurrection, was your firm foundation? Not a hope, not a maybe, but a guarantee. What if you were certain? Maybe you like to gamble. Uh, Maybe you like to gamble. What if you knew for certain that your favorite sports team was going to win tomorrow? Right? Like you were at the, like it was, it was played the day day before because of COVID. And so you went to the game and you're a part of the filming crew, right? And you knew, you saw the game, you knew how it was going to end. And you decided I'm going to go place a bet, right? And you knew for certain who was going to win. Would you put down $10? Or would you put down everything you had? What if you were certain this day that Jesus Christ had raised from the dead and that by faith in him, your resurrection was guaranteed? What Peter is saying and why David is crying out to God as a refuge that could not be shaken is because they were certain of the resurrection. That death wouldn't be the end of their life, but that God would save them. And it's there in God's presence where pleasure and joy and life that we dreamed of truly began. And when you believe this, your future resurrection, it changes you. Not because it's cool, not because it's nice, but because it's true. And it becomes your ultimate hope in life. If it wasn't a fact, if there wasn't any evidence, why would the Jews who thought the idea of a man who was divine, the highest blasphemy, start worshiping over him overnight. If it wasn't true, why would the Jews who thought that God being killed was unthinkable begin to worship this man Jesus overnight? Why would Peter, who's preaching this sermon in Acts, be willingly crucified for a lie he knew he was making up? People from all times and all places have known that dead people stay dead. We've always known this. We moderns aren't the first people to discover this. That's why they crucified Jesus. But Jesus rose again, and this has shaken the world. And when it becomes a truth in your own life, it will shake your life. May it shake you from death to life this Easter morning. Because Easter has changed everything. It turned the world upside down, and it becomes a reality in your heart. It will do the same. What if Jesus' resurrection became a fact to you this morning? And what if David's description of of your future, of his future, was your future? What if you believed that you would one day rise and be in the presence of God forever and ever? Would you dare to trust in Jesus? For those of us who already believe, imagine that you left here and you were a hundred times more sure, more certain of the resurrection. How might that change your life? If you were a hundred times more certain, would you handle your finances just a little bit differently? 
your time maybe just a little bit differently? Your family, your children, would you spend more time with your neighbors? Would you, would you volunteer in church? Would you help out with children's church? Would you, whatever it is, how would it change if you believed this with more certainty than when you walked in? It would change you just the same. Easter calls us all to resurrection glory, to resurrection hope, but also to resurrection life. Like David and Peter, we must have an unshakable refuge. This is and is found only in Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead and whose resurrection guarantees our own. He is the firm foundation. He is the ultimate security. He is our refuge, and in him we receive our place in the unshakable, eternal, and wonderful kingdom of God. Go home this day and celebrate Easter, the resurrection, the end of death, and the victory over all things. It's for sure. Let's praise our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have risen, caused your son to be risen again from the dead. Lord, that you have brought in all hope. Lord, that you have made a foundation and a hope that we can stand on with all of our hope, with all of our might, and we will never be disappointed. Lord, we long for the day when we get to look upon your face, but also when your face looks back upon us and we feel your joy. Lord, let us to dream of that day. Let us to hope for that day. But Lord, until that day, let us serve and follow you and worship you with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds and our strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What's wonderful about